Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Monica Morrow, and to begin, she commented on a landmark and practice-changing clinical trial for which she was senior author. The American College of Surgeons Z11 trial was a prospective randomized trial for women with T1 and T2 clinically node-negative breast cancers who were undergoing treatment with breast-conserving therapy with whole breast irradiation and were found to have a positive sentinel node, meaning an H&E-detected metastasis in the sentinel node. And the randomization in that study was to no further axillary treatment or axillary dissection. The endpoint was survival, and the secondary endpoint was local regional recurrence. So it was anticipated that because this was a trial of women with positive nodes, that they virtually all would receive adjuvant systemic therapy, and they did. About 98% of them got endocrine therapy, chemotherapy, or the combination, and there was no difference in the distribution between treatment arms. Also, because this study was considered very radical at the time that it was conceived, and there was a lot of concern that women were going to end up with massive inoperable axillary recurrences, if the surgeon got into the axilla and found matted axillary nodes or could document that there were more than three sentinel nodes involved by metastases, the patient could be removed from the trial. So this is really a trial of women with metastases to one or two axillary nodes. Were you able to accrue as many patients as you hoped to in this study? So the study was definitely difficult to accrue to, interestingly because patients either adamantly wanted axillary dissection or they didn't want axillary dissection, and so it was a challenge to get patients to randomize. So one of the issues about this study has been that the original sample size was not achieved. It accrued a little bit under half of the planned sample size. However, in spite of that, the predefined statistical plan was still carried out, and there was no evidence of inferiority in the sentinel node arm. And I think more importantly, if you look at the differences in local regional recurrence between the sentinel node only group and the axillary dissection group, and in the sentinel node only group, the nodal recurrence rate was 0.9%, and in the axillary dissection group, it was 0.3%. Those differences are so small when you consider that in the early breast cancer trialist collaborative overview or the Oxford overview analysis, in order to see a survival difference between local treatments at 15 years, the magnitude of difference in local recurrence at five years between groups needs to be 10% or more. And so this difference is less than 1%. So the recruitment of the rest of the sample is exceptionally unlikely to have changed the outcome of this study. Now, one of the issues with the study, as you mentioned, these people are getting breast-conserving therapy and therefore radiation treatment. Any guesses or thoughts about how much was the radiation to the axilla that contributed to the findings? Well, we certainly think that radiation that involved the lower part and the mid portion of the axilla probably did contribute to these findings. We know that conventional tangent radiation to the breast will treat to 
about 95% of the full dose, a large part of level one of the axilla in most women. So this trial basically leverages the fact that women are receiving multimodality therapy in the form of radiation, in the form of systemic therapy to allow us to decrease the magnitude and therefore the morbidity of surgery. So yes, part of the axilla was treated, but the side effect profile in the sentinel node only arm was clearly better than in the axillary dissection arm. A lot of people have speculated that perhaps patients randomized to Z11 had their tangent fields changed or raised to try to treat more of the axilla. And that's certainly a possibility, and there is an effort going on right now to actually look at the radiation ports in the study to define this more clearly, but I have no reason to believe that all the radiation oncologists who were involved in this protocol cheated. And in terms of the clinical correlates of this, a lot of people at this point have taken this study and now offer the option to women of not having an axillary dissection. Is that what you've done? We started back in September of 2010, because obviously we had access to the full results before the written paper came out. We adopted a policy across our surgical group at Memorial of applying the results of Z11 to all women who fit the criteria. So clinically node negative on physical exam, we do not perform ultrasounds of the axilla or other imaging studies to exclude the presence of nodal disease. And we have eliminated the use of frozen section of the sentinel node in the operating room in patients who meet these criteria. And so we wait to get the final pathology back. And if there is involvement of only one or two sentinel nodes, with no extracapsular extension, we do not perform axillary dissection. We do tell women that if they have three or more involved nodes or extracapsular extension, that they will have to go back to the operating room for dissection. And so far, we have now treated over 200 patients in this fashion. And the proportion who have to go back to the operating room is quite small at 6%. Now, you wrote a really great paper along with Armando Giuliano in the Annals of Surgical Oncology to cut is to cure. Can we really apply Z11 in practice? Can you talk about what you and Dr. Giuliano thought about and put in this paper and particularly address the issue that you discussed here of people with ER negative tumors and young women? Sure. So the Z11 study obviously is a paradigm changing study in the way we practice surgery, and it has been very difficult for many people to accept. And one of the concerns that's been expressed is that most of the women in the study were postmenopausal, and most of them had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And that's certainly true. And in fact, most breast cancer occurs in postmenopausal women, and it has the estrogen receptor. So that's kind of consistent with disease biology. So when thinking about whether or not you can apply these results to ER negative women, I think the question you need to ask is, is there any evidence that estrogen receptor status is a predictor of axillary nodal recurrence? And the answer to that is no, there is not. Several large studies have used multivariable analysis to look at predictors of nodal relapse, and neither patient age nor estrogen receptor status are predictors. And interestingly, we looked in a very large data set of 6,000 women at Memorial 
And although we worry most about the so-called triple negative breast cancers, ERPR, HER2 negative breast cancers, because we know they have a high rate of systemic disease, after you adjust for other factors, they actually have a lower rate of axillary nodal involvement than ER positive breast cancers and a lower likelihood of having four or more positive nodes. So we think it is safe to apply the results in those populations of women. And as far as young women go, it's quite clear that young women, defined as under 40, have a higher risk of local recurrence in the breast than their older counterparts. But there is no corresponding information that I can find that says they have a higher risk of nodal recurrence. So as I said, at Memorial, we are applying this to women regardless of age, regardless of receptor profile. Now, one of the implicit issues here is the morbidity of axillary dissection. Do you have the sense that a substantial number of surgeons might be underestimating it? And what kinds of, when you think about it or when you discuss with a patient, you know, what kinds of numbers are in your mind in terms of complications, specifically lymphedema? So I think you're right that the morbidity of axillary dissection is sometimes underestimated, and particularly in women undergoing breast conserving surgery where the surgery on the breast itself is quite small, clearly the side effects of the axillary dissection are the primary ones. And if you look at surveys of what women are most concerned about, lymphedema rates as their number one concern. And we know that with axillary dissection, somewhere around 20% of women over the course of their lifetime will develop some degree of lymphedema that's measurable, and a higher proportion of them perceive that they have it even if you can't measure it. So with uh, sentinel node biopsy, lymphedema numbers go down, at least in the short term, to the range of 5% or less, so that's a big difference. In the immediate post-op period, you see fewer infections, you see less pain, less problems with movement, and of course, you don't need a drain after a sentinel node biopsy, so patients are able to return to full activity much more rapidly. How much does axillary dissection add to the morbidity of doing mastectomy? Well, it's the part that hurts. I mean, axillary dissection is the painful part, so a mastectomy without an axillary dissection is less painful than a mastectomy with an axillary dissection. Drainage is longer with the axillary dissection. And again, of course, you still have the lymphedema, the changes in sensation in the upper inner aspect of the arm that come with the dissection. So it adds. So I know you don't do many mastectomies, but what about the option of not doing axillary dissection, sentinel node positive patient getting a mastectomy? So right now, I think that that is an extrapolation that we cannot make from the Z11 data because of the issue of how much the radiotherapy contributes to local control. And since radiotherapy at this point in time is not standard for all women with one or two lymph node metastases, I think you cannot apply the results of Z11 to women undergoing mastectomy. So I see you had an editorial in the JCA that was just published on DCIS, and I was curious what your thoughts were about the San Antonio presentation by Larry Solon, who's also on the same audio program, about the new Oncotype DCIS assay. Right. So I think in DCIS, there has always been this dilemma of how do we select women 
who don't need to receive radiotherapy. And so the idea of an Oncotype score that would identify women who weren't going to get benefit from radiotherapy is very attractive. Having said that, while the results of this initial presentation are intriguing, I don't think we're quite there yet. And the reason I say that is that, first of all, the ECOG trial in which they studied the DCIS Oncotype was a very selected subset of women with DCIS. The median size of DCIS in that study was eight millimeters. They were tiny DCIS. But what it would be nice to see is whether or not, number one, these results could actually be validated in a different set of patients because this was the first data set. So there's not really an independent validation data set And it would also be interesting to see if they hold up across a broader range of DCIS, meaning bigger DCIS, DCIS more widely distributed across age groups, that kind of thing. I think that's what we need to know. So let's move over and talk a bit about your cases. But before we kind of get to them, I'm just kind of curious, sort of taking a step back, I know you see a lot of people who other surgeons have seen in a second opinion. Are there any kind of themes in terms of when you see people who've been initially evaluated by another surgeons of things that I'm not going to say are errors, but things that you do kind of differently? And there's a substantial number of people who sort of approach it differently in practice. So I think there are two areas. One is the use of MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, in the evaluation of patients for breast cancer surgery, which is something I do very infrequently and which is done very commonly in the community and practice. And the concern that I have about this is, although we know that MRI finds cancer in, finds additional cancer in the same breast in 16% of women on average who have breast cancer, evidence that finding it in any way improves the patient outcomes is completely lacking. There are now two prospective randomized trials, the COMAS trial from England and another trial called Monet from Europe that show that doing a pre-op MRI does not increase the likelihood of achieving negative margins at the first lumpectomy, and it doesn't decrease conversions from lumpectomy to mastectomy. What it does do is increase the upfront mastectomy rate. So it causes a woman to have a mastectomy she wouldn't otherwise have had. And so far, several retrospective studies do not show that MRI decreases local recurrence after breast conserving surgery. So Yes, there's additional disease in the breast. We've known that that additional disease has been there for the past 30 years. That's why we give radiotherapy. And we now have in ER positive women selected without MRI, the 10-year rates of in-breast recurrence are 2 to 3%. They're remarkably low. And for ER negative women, they're about 6%. So it's hard to make that better. So MRI ends up causing a whole lot of additional imaging, extra biopsies and mastectomies that aren't necessary. And I really think people need to ask themselves, what evidence is there for benefit of this test in the average woman? Before you go into the other issue, I would commend to listeners 
your paper in the Lancet from November 2011. Very brief, as a lot of Lancet papers are, but really great review of this. And of course, the other thing that you get into in the paper is MRI for screening. Yes, so MRI for screening is something different. There, in women who are known BRCA mutation carriers or who have family histories consistent with genetic breast cancer who haven't been tested or some other gene other than BRCA, there I think there's clear evidence that we have a problem with mammographic screening and that MRI screening can find smaller cancers, cancers in between or that aren't detected on mammograms. And although we don't have a survival benefit shown in any of those studies because it wasn't examined, there, I think that there's no argument that MRI screening is appropriate, but that's very different than the woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer. And you were going to mention another situation where you do things differently. So the other situation, I think, which is a common cause for second opinion and a lot of controversy is margins. And this eternal question of what is an appropriate surgical margin and you know, there is this prevailing feeling that bigger margins are better margins. So there are a lot of patients who are undergoing re-excision, even though their margins are technically negative, meaning tumor cells don't touch the ink, to get a bigger margin. And there was an excellent meta-analysis of this margins issue published by Nimet Husami in the European Journal of Cancer 2010 or 11, which showed no decrease in local recurrence with greater negative margin widths. And I think that's because most patients today receive some form of adjuvant systemic therapy, and both endocrine therapy and chemotherapy have dramatic benefits in reducing the risk of in-breast recurrence as well as the risk of distant metastases. So actually, kind of tying into what we were saying before about oncotype, what are the situations where you're okay not using radiation therapy to the breast, both with DCIS and invasive breast cancer? So in invasive breast cancer, which I think is easier, the only time I don't give radiation is in women over the age of 70 who have favorable, generally ERPR positive T1 breast cancers that lack an extensive introductal component or lots of lymphovascular invasion or in elderly women with significant comorbidities. Other than that, I think that there is no subset of women with invasive cancer for whom it's been shown to be safe to eliminate radiation. And given the fact that the Oxford overview shows an increased breast cancer mortality rate in patients who don't get radiation, I think we shouldn't be just arbitrarily eliminating radiation for those patients. In DCIS, it's a little bit more difficult. Again, several prospective randomized trials have shown that you can't identify a subset of women who don't get some benefit from radiation in terms of reducing local recurrence, but the magnitude of that benefit can be relatively small. So I think that patients in whom radiation may be more optional. Again, postmenopausal women, all studies have shown that premenopausal status or age under 50 is associated with a higher rate of local recurrence in DCIS. So I think those women warrant radiotherapy. 
high-grade DCIS, which is not radiated, has a high rate of early local recurrence, so I tend to radiate almost all of that. So it's really small DCIS in postmenopausal women of low or intermediate grade. But having said that, the caveat is that in the ECOG observational study of excision alone in that subset of patients, you see that out through eight years of follow-up, the rate of local recurrence in the low to intermediate grade group has not plateaued. It continues to go up, and we know that the natural history of local recurrence in low to intermediate grade DCIS is more prolonged than in high grade DCIS. So I think we need to be a little bit careful in women who are going to be alive in 10 years what that local recurrence rate will actually be. How comfortable are you or do you think a surgeon in a practice should be making clinical decisions based on grade? (laughs) Well, of course, grade is another one of those things that we tend to regard as an absolute, but which there's a lot of variation between pathologists. And the variation tends to come in the middle at grade two. Grade one, grade three are for most cases much more clear. It's things that are called grade two. And in invasive cancer, if you look at genetic profiles, there is no genetic profile of grade two. They all fall out as either grade one or grade three. Whether that's true in DCIS, I don't know. I'm not aware of any study that has asked that question. So I think people just need to be aware of that. I guess I wonder, because you know, the issue of grade, and we'll talk about this when we get to one of your patients, comes up in terms of, you know, do you depend upon that or do you depend on something centrally defined, you know, such as a recurrent score? And that was the thing that I was wondering about with this sort of DCIS, ANCA type thing, not whether or not, you know, you use it today, but is this the direction that we in general need to move in in terms of DCIS, a more centralized, you know, repeatable quantitative estimate? Well, I think that issue is a very important one, and it's important not only for DCIS, but when you consider that here we still have marked variations in the measurement of estrogen receptor all these years later, the same variations in the measurement of HER2 status have been shown. So one advantage of tests that are developed in a platform that can be quality controlled and analyzed for reproducibility is that you may eliminate some of that unwanted variation. So I think that might be a benefit of those tests if there are enough patients for whom it really makes a difference. So let's talk about your patients. Let's start out with your 56-year-old woman. This is a 56-year-old professional executive who presented with a large, a clinical T3, six centimeters, N1 cancer in her right breast. Mammogram showed no other lesion in the breast besides the palpable mass. Prior screening mammogram? She had not had a screening mammogram for the past three years, too busy. Hmm. Okay. So... She had a core biopsy, which made the diagnosis of grade 3 infiltrating ductal cancer, which was ERPR and HER2 negative. She also had a core biopsy of the palpable axillary node, which confirmed the presence of metastatic disease. 
In talking to this woman, she clearly has operable breast cancer at this point in time, so she could have undergone immediate mastectomy. If she had a mastectomy, given the clinical stage of her cancer, she was going to need post-mastectomy radiotherapy, and she was very concerned about cosmetic appearance and was interested in breast conservation if that was a medically acceptable option. Could you talk a little bit about the size of her breast and sort of how the tumor sort of fit in in terms of the possibility of breast conservation? So at this point in time, this six centimeter cancer, although it was located in the upper outer quadrant of her breast, which is a relatively favorable site for doing big lumpectomies in terms of hiding cosmetic defects, she had a generous B small C cup breast, and there was no way you could really take this out without producing a substantial cosmetic defect. Now, I see she had an MRI also. Yes. So she had an MRI very specifically because she was going to get neoadjuvant therapy. So one of the places where I think MRI is clinically useful is in the setting of neoadjuvant therapy because one of the problems about doing breast conservation after neoadjuvant therapy is trying to reliably assess the degree of response. And physical exam, mammogram, and ultrasound are not particularly good at doing that because when the cancer dies, it often makes fibrosis, which remains as a palpable abnormality, a density on mammogram or ultrasound. So you have trouble telling what's living cancer and what's dead cancer. So MRI by loss of enhancement, for example, can suggest that there is no more viable cancer, although that's not certainly 100%. And it can also give you a better idea of whether the cancer has died by shrinking down concentrically, in which case it's pretty easy to do breast conserving surgery, or whether it's kind of died in a scattered buckshot pattern where breast conservation may still be difficult, even though the number of cancer cells present may only be half of what were there at presentation. So I do get MRI in women who are going to have neoadjuvant therapy once at the beginning before treatment starts and then after the last dose of chemotherapy. The other thing that's critical in this situation is to make sure that there's a clip in the cancer so that if the patient happens to have a complete response to chemotherapy, that you know where to center your lumpectomy. And did she have palpable nodes? She did. She presented with a palpable, clinically positive node. That was the node that was cored and shown to be cancer. Incidentally, was the node seen on MRI? It was seen on MRI. Although, you know, MRI sees lots of lymph nodes because lymph nodes belong in the axilla, and particularly when MRI is obtained after core biopsy, and you have enlarged lymph nodes as reactive nodes, then you often end up biopsying nodes that really aren't worrisome after all. So if I want to stage the axilla, I find ultrasound a better way to do that. So what are your general parameters for considering neoadjuvant therapy in order to facilitate breast conservation? And how does having a palpable biopsy-proven axillary node affect that decision? Well, the node doesn't affect it one way or the other, other than the fact that you can very comfortably tell the patient that they're getting chemotherapy anyway because they've got nodal disease, regardless of whether it's given preoperatively or postoperatively. 
for somebody like this with a triple negative cancer, once the cancer is a centimeter in size, you know that anyway, so nodal status is not real important. So in terms of selection, things that I think are important, there are some women who are never going to be candidates for breast conservation, and in those women, neoadjuvant therapy isn't going to downstage them. So those are women who have true multicentric cancer, that is, separate tumors in separate quadrants of the breast, women who are not candidates because they have extensive DCIS in association with their invasive cancer, or extensive microcalcifications in the breast because those calcifications generally don't go away. Patients who have lobular cancer or low-grade estrogen receptor positive cancers tend to respond less well to neoadjuvant therapy, but there's a very interesting paper that's out in EPUB right now from the Austrian group where they looked at their experience with lobular cancers in three neoadjuvant trials and still were able to downstage 50% of them. So although traditionally I have not thought of that group as very favorable, this suggests that if a woman wants breast conservation in that setting, it's worth trying. Patients who have HER2 overexpressing cancers who get chemotherapy plus trastuzumab have a particularly high rate of complete response, about 50 to 60% pathologic CR, so they are also a favorable group for using neoadjuvant therapy. And so what happened with this lady? So this lady received dose-dense doxorubicin, cytoxan, and ataxane, and clinically her mass decreased in size to about one centimeter. The palpable node went completely away, and her imaging study showed a small amount of residual abnormality around the clip, but also suggested that the tumor had decreased in size. And so what I always tell women like this is that they appear to be a candidate for breast conservation, but we're never going to know for sure if it works until we attempt it and see what the pathology shows, because if they've got viable cancer spattered all around their specimen, and you've taken out a smaller piece of tissue than was originally encompassed by their tumor, then you have to worry that they've got that same viable cancer scattered all around in their breast. So this woman did have a lumpectomy, and it showed a tumor bed that you could measure with fibrosis and changes consistent with chemotherapy that was about five centimeters in size, but there was only about I guess, eight millimeters of viable residual cancer left. The margins were widely clear, so her lumpectomy worked. Did you do an axillary dissection? I did. So the real controversy here, I think everybody accepts that randomized trials have shown you can downstage for breast conservation with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. The real controversy is what do you do with someone who has a proven nodal metastasis whose node goes away, is that patient then a candidate for sentinel node biopsy? And there's a very limited amount of data on this right now, and two of the three studies suggest that the false negative rate of sentinel node biopsy in this circumstance is about 25%, which is unacceptably high. So I think until we get bigger and better studies, to me, the management of someone who starts out with a clinically positive biopsy-proven cancer in their node is to do an axillary dissection. How about the patient who clinically has a negative axilla to start with? 
So I think clinically negative axilla is a different story. There we again know from randomized trials like B18 that you will decrease the need for axillary dissection by about 30%. So in somebody who's clinically node negative, we do their sentinel node biopsy after chemotherapy. And if the sentinel node is negative, we do not do an axillary dissection. And the group from the MD Anderson has published a large study, which is the first study that has follow-up on patients treated that way that shows no increase in local recurrence in the axilla with that approach. So where is this woman right now, and what kind of cosmetic result was attained? Needless to say, her cosmesis was beautiful. So it looked fine because we did a small lumpectomy, and so she is actually now in the process of receiving her radiotherapy. Okay, let's talk about your 42-year-old lady. Okay, so this is a 42-year-old woman who was not undergoing screening mammography at all, and noticed a lump in her breast, which she decided was a cyst because she had had a previous cyst aspiration about five years ago. So she did not seek medical attention for about four months until she noticed it increasing in size, and then she saw her gynecologist who confirmed the presence of a palpable mass and referred her for a mammogram, which showed a spiculated mass consistent with cancer, which by ultrasound was solid. Clinically, it measured three centimeters. She had a core biopsy that showed grade two infiltrating ductal carcinoma. She opted to be treated with breast conserving therapy, and this confirmed the presence of a three centimeter grade two infiltrating ductal cancer with a minimal amount of DCIS, and there were two negative sentinel nodes. The ER in this case was 80% of cells staining strongly positive, the PR was 70%, and the HER2 was negative by immunohistochemistry. So this is a patient who, in the past, based on, I think, the combination of her young age and larger tumor size, would have gotten chemotherapy followed by tamoxifen. We have adopted, in collaboration with our medical oncologists, the use of Oncotype for patients who have breast cancers that are bigger than five millimeters in size and are node negative and HER2 negative. So this patient had an oncotype sent. Her oncotype score was 10, indicating that she had a very low risk of recurrence with treatment with endocrine therapy alone. She was more than happy not to receive chemotherapy, and so she went on to radiation and is now taking tamoxifen. So what about the issue of clinical factors factoring into this decision? Clearly, tumor size is something that gets a lot of people uncomfortable. Three centimeters is pretty big. How large are you comfortable using an archetype to avoid chemo? I think for T2 cancers that we're pretty comfortable. I think in the original studies that looked at the relationship between archetype score and traditional clinical variables, that Oncotype was certainly, although clinical variables remain prognostic in some circumstances, they don't predict which patients benefit from chemotherapy. And I think that's the real value of the Oncotype is the predictive part of the test, not the prognostic part of the test. 
And what about nodal status? You mentioned that at Memorial, your team there is working with the oncologist. You're routinely doing it in node negative, I think above five millimeters. What about the patient with you know more nodes? So I think that right now, although breast cancer is clearly pretty much of a biologic continuum, and there's no reason to believe that if oncotype score is predictive in node negative breast cancer, it's not predictive in node positive breast cancer. And there are certainly data that shows that. Kathy Albain's study would indicate that. But I think there is not a level of comfort with the high residual risk of relapse in node positive patients treated with endocrine therapy alone. So given the fact that there is a major national clinical trial going on to prospectively validate oncotype in node-positive breast cancer, we are not using it for standard H&E-positive macrometastases. Now, we were using it sometimes for patients who had very, very low nodal disease burden, isolated tumor cells, and micrometastases, where the benefit of adding in chemotherapy was much more controversial. But we have actually stopped looking with immunohistochemistry at our sentinel nodes, so we find far fewer of those small nodal deposits today. I guess the situation that I hear people talking about using oncotype node positive off-study is the older patient, the patient you really don't want to use chemotherapy, maybe there's only one node involved. What about those kinds of patients? Well, I think you could certainly apply Oncotype in that circumstance, or alternatively, I think if there's really some reason based on the patient's performance status, comorbidities, or what the patient herself wants, not to give chemotherapy, that it's perfectly okay to make that decision that way as well. But I certainly think you could make yourself feel better if you had a very low Oncotype score in that circumstance. What about using an assay-like oncotype in the neoadjuvant situation? Like, you know, go back to your 42-year-old lady, maybe the tumor's a little bit bigger, small breast, kind of like your first patient. You know, you're using oncotype here to say, hey, you're not really, as you say, going to benefit from chemo. What about using it in terms of whether or not to consider neoadjuvant chemo? Well, I think that For a patient who would not receive chemotherapy otherwise, so now we're back in the realm of node-negative estrogen receptor positive breast cancers, that that might be a consideration. It would be a consideration if you were going to give neoadjuvant endocrine therapy to them. That's not an approach that has ever been very popular in the United States, although certainly they do it in the UK and in parts of Europe, I think probably because we lack the patients to treat that long preoperatively, and our patients feel like if they're not in the operating room rapidly, something bad is happening. So I think in those kind of cases where a patient, you want to be able to say to a patient, you absolutely are going to get chemotherapy, whether you choose to have it preoperatively or postoperatively, Oncotype might help define that for some patients. How about your 55-year-old lady? So this is a very typical patient, 55 years old, undergoes routine screening mammogram on her mammogram this year, had a new 
one centimeter cluster of calcifications in the upper outer quadrant of the right breast, which had not been present on last year's film. Her physical examination was normal. She underwent a core biopsy with clip placement. It showed grade two ductal carcinoma in situ. After a discussion of management options, and one of the things that I'm always careful to tell women who have DCIS diagnosed by core biopsy is that there's about a 15% chance that when the lesion is completely excised, they may turn out to have some invasive cancer. But we manage them based on what we know, which is the presence of DCIS. So she opted to undergo breast conserving surgery. She had a lumpectomy that showed 1.2 centimeters of grade 2 DCIS, mixed solid and cribiform type. The closest margin was 3 millimeters. The DCIS was ER positive. So as far as I'm concerned, in this patient, she's completed surgery, provided that there are no residual calcifications on the post-surgical mammogram, which there were not. I think there is no convincing evidence that margins more widely clear in patients who are going to receive radiotherapy do anything to reduce local recurrence. And interestingly enough, in the ECOG study of excision alone for small DCIS, when they looked at local recurrence based on whether the margin was a centimeter or less than a centimeter, no difference in local recurrence there either. So this lady is finished with surgery. Um, she does not need re-excision. In a 55-year-old with 1.2 centimeters of DCIS, we would most certainly tell her that radiotherapy would reduce her risk of local recurrence and we would offer somebody with ER-positive DCIS endocrine therapy as an option, not a mandatory. So basically what I tell these women is that it's not going to change their survival, but it reduces the risk of local recurrence in the preserved breast. It reduces the risk of new primary cancers in the other breast. The magnitude of that benefit is not huge. It's in the range of about four or five percent on both sides usually. And for that level of benefit, some women will opt to take tamoxifen. Other women will not. I think that's a matter of choice. But clearly, patients who have two breasts at risk, patients who are premenopausal, patients who are postmenopausal and don't have a uterus are the ones who are in the most favorable risk-benefit category for tamoxifen. She was postmenopausal? She was postmenopausal. What about an AI instead of tamoxifen? So I think an AI is an alternative based on the data from MA20 in the prevention setting. There was a small population of patients with DCIS in that study. They were too small to be analyzed separately, but I think that the benefit in terms of prevention you can translate to DCIS. And then I think it's a matter of side effect profile, which in general for the AIs is a little bit more favorable than for tamoxifen, as long as it's somebody who doesn't have a lot of bone density problems going into things. Getting back to the local therapy issues here in terms of re-excision and radiation therapy, what do you think you would see kind of nationally if you were to survey oncologists in practice in a case like this and in your fellow surgical oncology investigators? Well, there was a population-based study that was published in JAMA that 
demonstrated that about 45% of reexcisions are done for patients with negative margins. So I think a lot of patients are getting reexcised to get more widely clear margins. We actually surveyed surgeons asking them about margin width choices for DCIS and invasive breast cancers. And there was no correlation between preference for more widely clear margins and surgeon age or surgeon gender. But surgeons who did a higher proportion of their practice in breast cancer actually were more likely to favor smaller margins, perhaps because they know the data isn't real strong, saying that bigger ones are better.